People of God, let's again turn to 1 Corinthians as we continue the series that we had begun actually before Christmas. And we've come to the seventh chapter. Now, I must tell you, I've never heard a minister go through the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians in public worship before, or for that matter, even in a class. I'm sure it's done. I'm not questioning that. But in all of my days, I've never heard it. It is a chapter that is about marriage and related issues. It is much needed in the Church of Jesus Christ today as it was then, given by divine inspiration. And our children need to hear these things as well, especially I think our boys. And um, we need to learn these things well. We will address in a forthright way what is found here, and yet it is always my goal to do so with modesty and with the prayer that the Lord will strengthen His church, not only here, but throughout the world, as we look together at this wonderful chapter. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Our God and Father, we, we sometimes come before Thee with hearts that are so overwhelmed with what it means that we are loved with an everlasting love that has been shown to us in the cross and that through the Holy Spirit has been shed abroad in our souls, that the return of that love seems so very weak and inadequate. And indeed, in and of ourselves it is, but it is not in and of ourselves that we worship, but in and through Jesus Christ the Mediator. And so we pray that our feeble efforts to return thy love will be received through the power and strength of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed to redeem us from our awful sins. And as we come to this chapter, Heavenly Father, may it be a time of instruction, may it be a time of faith and repentance, may, be, may it be a time in which our young people are also deeply committed to these things that are taught here in the word of the Lord. And also, Heavenly Father, as always, as we grow in holiness in this church, we pray for those who have not yet come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and pray that even as we address these issues, that there may be those who see their need of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. We'll be taking this chapter in three sermons, and so if you will stand We'll be looking at the first nine verses this morning. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning with verse 1 through verse 9, this is the word of God. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion." The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, people of God, Paul the Apostle is addressing in 1 Corinthians saints that are living in a hyper-paganized culture in the city of Corinth. He addresses at least 10 very serious issues in this church. And thus far, he has addressed factions, worldly wisdom, a case of immorality, taking believers to court, and just prior to this passage, the matter of sexual purity. Each believer must glorify God in his body in the area of sexual purity. You will remember what he said in verse 20, end of 19 and verse 20 of the last chapter, chapter 6. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, with that passage reverberating in their minds, Paul next addresses matters relating to marriage, divorce, the unmarried, all in chapter 7. But I think before we actually dig into the verses that we read this morning, we need some orientation about this chapter that will help us to understand it better. So make that your first point, you note-takers, orientation. And for that orientation, we begin with verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now Paul says in this verse that he is answering questions that had been sent to him. And the difficulty in understanding this chapter is that we have his answers, we don't have, his, have the questions that were sent. And so we have to ascertain what those questions were as best we can as we read Paul's answers to the question. Conversion from paganism brought many complications to the marriage relationship, especially when one was converted and the other spouse was not. But here, too, the antithesis is at work, seeing things differently from the way the world sees us as an evidence of our regeneration. Now, before looking at these verses, it is good for us to remember that the Scriptures teach and that's why the passage from Genesis this morning, the Scriptures teach that God created man. He created man male and female. God ordained marriage. He ordained marriage between man and woman only, and between one man and one woman only, until death do them part. That is God's blueprint for marriage. And since the fall, believers must marry only believers, which is also stressed later in this passage. Now, marriage in the Roman world was a complex thing. Slaves, for example, could marry with the master's permission, but Roman masters, I'm not speaking of Christians, but the garden variety Roman master would have no problem whatsoever in dividing families and breaking up marriages 
There also was a situation in which fathers sold their young daughters into marriage, and in the Roman world, girls married very, very young. With patricians, things were somewhat different. There were periods of engagement, and there were wedding ceremonies, but there also was much, much concubinage and adultery and a lot of divorce in the Roman world. The gospel came into a fallen, confused, and deeply rebellious and sinful world. We have little idea how Christianity has raised the place of women, the responsibility of husbands to set an atmosphere of love in the home. But as paganism becomes more the norm in our society, we can expect, and we are seeing, more and more sexual confusion and a denigration of marriage and of the family. We must not participate in this. We must walk according to the standard of God's holy word, the Bible. So what are we Christians to do? Follow suit with the world? No, certainly not. Quite the opposite. Christians are called to be different than the surrounding culture and to live biblically in this and every area of life. Now with that bit of orientation, let's dig into the verses. And the first point here, the second point if you're a note taker, first was orientation, but going to the text, the first thing we see really is that marriage is good. Marriage is good. Now you say, well, how do you find that, Pastor, in that first verse where the Apostle Paul says, literally, it is good for a man not to touch a woman? Well, good here is that which is appropriate to a situation. Uh, as one of our Greek lexicons puts it. And literally, he uses the term touch. It is good for a man not to touch a woman, which is a euphemism for sexual intimacy in marriage. It's possible that Paul anticipates the discussion that we will see beginning in verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. And it's possible that that's what he's saying in this verse, anticipating what he will say. I really don't think so, however. It seems more likely that Paul is quoting a slogan of those in the church at Corinth that taught the superiority of marital celibacy. Now, you'll notice in your ESV, if you're using an ESV, that there are quotation marks. And what the translators seem to be assuming is what I'm saying that there's a slogan that he's quoting. He is actually quoting something that has been written to him and that has been said in the context of the church there at Corinth about marriage. Certainly, Paul does not quote it with approval. He tells us explicitly in such passages as 1 Timothy 4 and Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is ordained of God, that it's a great blessing, that it indeed represents the love that Christ has for his own people, his redemptive love. Forbidding marriage, according to 1 Timothy 4.3, is a sign of apostasy. There surely were various views on marriage in the church. Those of Jewish origin and background may see marriage as something that was mandatory. Others may see it as an expedient. Others may see it as even wrong. And that, I think, is what he's getting at in quoting this slogan here in verse 1. God says it is good for a man to touch a woman. That is, in the bonds of marriage, there should be sexual intimacy. 
Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor with the Lord, Proverbs 18.22. And the Bible does not contradict itself. Paul is saying nothing different than what you find in Proverbs 18 and in other places in Proverbs and in God's Word. So the Apostle Paul is quoting a slogan differing from that slogan, and the assumption is the opposite of that slogan, that marriage is good. It's God-ordained. The next thing then that we see, the third point in your outline, if you're a note taker, is one reason that is given for marriage. And that one reason, there are many reasons, but one reason we find in verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now the Bible gives numerous reasons for marriage and why God has ordained it. In Genesis, we are taught that it is given for the procreation of children. Indeed, Malachi says, so that we will have a godly seed. That's covenant theology at work. The home is to be viewed as a place of sanctity where children are to be nurtured to the praise of his name. Marriage is also given for the mutual society, help, and comfort of a man and a woman in their holy matrimony. And a man and a woman only one man and one woman only, and that not in serial relationships, but in a lasting bond of union and communion. Marriage is the bond in which God's good and joyful gift of sexual union is to be exercised, and it is not rightly exercised in any other context. Young people, I know what you hear, I know what you read, I know what the world is saying, It's everywhere. We are awash in sexual immorality, but the Scriptures teach that only within the bonds of marriage is the expression of sexuality, uh, the sexual intimacy, right. So this we find in Genesis and elsewhere in Scripture, this God ordained from the beginning. Paul here stresses that the Lord intends for marriage in a fallen world to be a strong help to avoid fornication. That's the point of verse 2. And this is one reason, not the only reason, but a reason that needed stressing in Corinth where, where sexual immorality was rampant and Corinth was known even in the pagan ancient world as a place where sexual immorality was rampant. Now, let it be said quite clearly that sexual desire is not sin. Sexual desire is not evil, but God-given. However, fallen human beings are sinful, and sexual desire is rightly expressed in service of a spouse in marriage. Celibacy is not the norm, though Paul will also address the call to singleness in this chapter. Paul is not reducing marriage to the expression of sexual intimacy. He has a wonderful and high view of marriage as a covenant of companionship, but Paul is insisting that sexual activity in marriage is one God-designed way of avoiding sexual sins. Not the only way, but it is one divinely ordained way. Now this leads us to another point that's found here in this text, and this is number four if you're taking an outline. The call to mutual intimacy in marriage. The call to mutual intimacy in marriage. And it's found here in verses 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife 
her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So conjugal rights are stressed. Indeed, husband and wife are one flesh, and their bodies serve each other. So when a man and a woman are married, I now pronounce you man and wife. Sexual relations are not only authorized, but they are demanded. They're not only authorized, but they are called for by God. Unless there's some physical reason that this cannot take place in marriage, it is authorized and called for by God, and only between one man and one woman in holy matrimony. Now, this deserves stressing. Only in the bonds of marriage is sexual intimacy right and appropriate, and sexual intimacy must be the norm in marriage. And we men, all of us, but we men, need to build into our lives under the authority of God's Word more and more zero tolerance of anything that would lead us into sexual immorality. Zero tolerance. The language of the text emphasizes that all that we have said is so. In verse 3, Paul uses the language of a debt, something that is owed as a euphemism for sex and marriage. And then he uses the word that means to pay back or it means to render. And it is a present imperative showing that sex and marriage is God's command that is habitual and ongoing in the marriage bond. And then in verse 4, he says that husbands and wives each have authority over their spouse's bodies, once again stressing the call to mutual, ongoing, regular sexual relations in marriage. So clearly, an intentionally celibate approach to marriage is wrong. And it should be obvious, but evidently it was not obvious. Now Paul says an occasional abstinence from the expression of sexual intimacy in marriage is sometimes called for, for a prescribed and limited time agreed upon by the couple. And so he says in verses 5 and 6, now I'm of the opinion that verse 6 goes with verse 5, not with verse 7. The way your ESV has divided things gives the impression that six goes with seven. I don't think so. I think six should go with five. So he says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. So I think that that's how it should be read. And he concedes, but he does not command that there should be temporary absence of sexual relation in marriage. So one says to the other, you know, dear, uh, I'm dealing with a real struggle in my heart, and I need some time in which I, 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 I pull away from everything as much as I can, and I give myself over to the reading of Scripture very intensely, and I give myself over to prayer and perhaps fasting, and uh, so let's agree on, on a short period of time in order that we can understand that I need to focus here 
so that I may grow in grace and I can be a better husband and a better father. And, and then when we do come back together, then your husband or your wife, whoever's speaking here, will be better able to function Christianly in the home and in life. So the point of verse 5, do not defraud one another in the physical relationship of marriage. God ordained marriage. Marriage is good. Sexual intimacy in marriage is good. It is not only proper, but in ordinary situations, God requires it in marriage. And husbands and wives owe this one to another in marriage. Now, sometimes you find people, and through history you found people, who think that husband and wife can just have a spiritual marriage, as they call it, meaning non-physical, rather platonic relationship, excluding health issues. The idea that the physical can be left out of marriage, thereby making it spiritual, is not spiritual. It is sinful. This is not of God. This is twisted, autonomous thinking. And it's very possible that some of that is what is going on here in the church of Corinth, at least with one group of people. So intimacy, according to this passage in marriage, must be regular and ongoing. This honors the Lord and it honors each other. Now you apply Philippians 2 to your relationship with your spouse. Sex in marriage should not be rare it should, not, it should not be non-existent, but also you take into consideration the weakness, the tiredness, the physical situation your spouse is in. All of those things are true, but only for a mutually agreed upon devotional purpose may there be an agreed upon brief interruption, all other things being equal. For example, in Exodus 19, before the giving of the law, you might remember that God told uh, the um, the Israelites, that they were not to, to engage in, in uh, sexual intimacy. You find the same kind of thing in Joel 2, 12 through 16. This was temporary. It was not intended to be permanent. I'm going to give you an aside here. Um, it's not found right in the text, but I think it's an important aside. Uh, in pastoral counsel, if you're having struggles in your marriage and you go to your pastor or your elder's counsel. And your pastor asks you the question, are you having regular ongoing intimacy in marriage? This is an appropriate question. It is appropriate data gathering. But if he begins to ask definite and distinct questions about intimate details, this is totally inappropriate It is totally out of the pale of the minister's call and responsibility, and you should find a better and a safer counselor. That having been said, back to the text. After an agreed-upon time of devotion, the couple comes back together. Verse 5 says, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So after the abstinence, the sexual drive may be higher, especially in the spouse that has not participated in the prayer time or the fasting. The point here is that no bad habit of regular abstinence from intimacy must develop from false spirituality. And if this is a problem, don't criticize your spouse. Discuss it openly, honestly. Don't argue. Pray together. Be patient. 
When appropriate, seek godly counsel. In some instances, there are medical issues that need to be sorted out. But certainly understand that the Lord does not approve of prudishness. There's nothing in the Bible like that. He calls married couples to physical intimacy. Sexual knowledge of each other is God's intent. Let's keep your finger here and turn back to Proverbs chapter 5 for a moment. Just for one example of how God expects marital intimacy to be expressed in marriage. Proverbs 5, 18 through 20. The writer Solomon is attacking the um, adulterous relationship. And he says in verse 18, let your, this is Proverbs 5, 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? So the scriptures are so plain here and elsewhere. Find your satisfaction in the embrace of your spouse. For this you have a thus saith the Lord. The marriage bed is a bed of benevolence, not of lust, but it is a great preventative to illicit lust. Now the best way for physical love to thrive is for love outside the marriage bed to thrive and the way in which you love each other and the small things of life and the way that that love grows in your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. It all comes back to this, people of God, knowing and communing with the Lord. Everything here is about the heart. Now moving on, the fifth thing in your outline celibacy is a gift. Not everyone possesses it. Celibacy is a gift. Not everyone possesses it. Verses 7 through 9. I wish that you were all as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. To be aflame with passion, the ESV translates, burn. For those not called to a single life, it is better to marry. Remember verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, Paul does not say, all right, young man, you need to run out and marry the first person that will say yes. Nor does he want us to disregard patience, prayer, where God has placed you in his providence, the necessities of life. All of these things are important in your evaluation. This is simply one element and an important element. So we do not set aside Self-control as the fruit of the Spirit. God's glory always must be the consuming goal in whatever state we find ourselves. 
So one is not more spiritual because he is or is not married. Being single is God's calling for some people, and it is not a second-class position in the church. And if there are those here in the church and you are uh, single, and that is God's calling for you either right now or perhaps permanently, that will come up later. And we speak so often here about children and family and all the rest. Please do not feel, please do not feel that we view you as somehow in a second-class position. It's simply not true. We are simply addressing what should be ordinarily the norm, and we are addressing the, the covenant of grace, which is usually thriving in and through the family. And you yourself are part of a family, this family of God. So keep in mind that Paul is cautioning about marriage in the present circumstances. Now we'll try and understand that, but somehow verse 26 is at play, I think, through the whole chapter, where he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. This must be kept in mind as we read the chapter. Now verse 7 determines how we must act. It is a matter of the Holy Spirit's gifts. Some people are gifted not to marry. Others do not have that gift. It's a matter of the Holy Spirit's gifting. So Paul was gifted not to marry and be totally undistracted from his service to Christ. The question as to whether he was married earlier is an interesting one, but I can't deal with that right now. But not everybody is so gifted. Some do have the gift of celibacy. Jesus spoke of that in Matthew 19, 12. Some are gifted to celibacy, but some do not have that gift. Now, if you desire to marry and the Lord has not yet provided for you, what do you do? Let me give you this bit of pastoral counsel as to what to do. First of all, you pray. Well, pastor, I knew you were going to say that. That's all I'm doing is praying. I'm not simply saying pray for the spouse. I'm saying commune with God. Learn to find your deepest passion fulfilled in your communion with the Lord. Also, do not be consumed by it, but take opportunity to be useful in the kingdom and to serve other people. And remember that God's provision is usually in the ordinary way of duty. Also, it is all also not wise to use um, to use this as an excuse for somehow not to gather with other young people. There can become come a, a kind of um, withdrawal, but rather it may be a wise thing to actually seek out other young men, young ladies people of the opposite sex who are godly, who are reformed, who also would like to marry, and some may be in this very congregation. Also, men, look, I'm never going to suggest to you that it's unimportant that you be physically attracted to the young woman, but keep it in perspective. Some of the most godly, wonderful Wives and mothers are, their beauty is from within. 
And it actually makes them really pretty on the outside. So please keep that in mind. Don't let airbrush pictures, what are you looking at those things for anyway? But don't let those pictures determine. So trust in the Lord. Do not set aside looking for that person. Trust in the Lord and His provision. Do not be disobedient. And seek a spouse appropriately. Do not forget also that God is at work in providence. He's working His purpose out, yes, even in suffering, and you you cannot know the plan. All you can do is be faithful in following Christ. You can know the goal is God's glory in your experience and to conform you, His child, to the image of His own Son. We walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us. So continue to walk by faith even when you don't know what God is doing. And let me say, when a couple decides to marry, long engagements are not usually a good idea. All right, I'm going to bring this to a conclusion. We need to keep marriage, singleness, the struggles and joys of both states, we need to keep all of this in perspective, and the Christian's perspective is not determined by the present, but ultimately by the future. Whatever our circumstances in life may be, for the Christian, it is the future, the return of Christ, the consummation of all things, the marriage supper of the Lamb that should determine our thoughts and feelings and attitudes about the present. And perhaps the true occurrence in the life of one of my favorite theologians, James Henley Thornwell, will be a help to you. Let me give you this. came to mind as I was preparing this. One of the most tragic occurrences related to a wedding happened in the family of this Southern Presbyterian theologian, James Henley Thornwall. But it is most instructive as to where our heart should be in relation to marriage and all things. Dr. Thornwall rushed home from the 1859 General Assembly to officiate his eldest daughter's wedding. She was his particular joy and pride. Of his children, she is the one that was most like him in her thought processes, and she was a godly, godly young woman. She was 20 years old. All the invitations had been sent out, and Dr. Thornwell arrived on the eve of her wedding to find that she was in the throes of a deathly illness. And she became her father's comforter as he was completely torn up in his soul over this and would go to her bedside and attempt to console her. This godly young woman that was dying on the eve of her wedding was consoling her father. Dr. Thornwell and his godly wife knelt together in an adjoining room and prayed and gave up their daughter to the Lord. She was to marry a godly man who later distinguished himself as a faithful minister of the Word, and it would have been a great joy for them to have lived together and served together. But just a little after the day that she would have taken her wedding vows, Thornwell's biographer says, the very attendants who, in a different scene, should have rejoiced hearing the bridegroom's voice with their white gloves lifted the bier and bore it to the grave. So the very attendants that were there for the wedding, carried her coffin to the grave. And she was buried 
in her wedding gown. At Elmwood Cemetery, Columbia, South Carolina, she was buried. Her marble marker bears the name Nanny Witherspoon Thornwell, along with this inscription, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. She had said to her father that she was as willing to go into the arms of her Redeemer as into those of her husband. Now that's the point, is it not? Married or unmarried, in sickness or health, with fulfilled or unfulfilled longings, in all of this brief life on this earth, if our hearts are the Lord's, we are safe and all is well. Let us learn to contemplate the glory of the gospel, the hope that awaits us to live in its reality, and to rest contented with God's provision. Amen and amen.